0: All right, well, hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff here at the World Business Academy, and I'm with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder, and, of course, Benjamin Schwartz, our radio production intern. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording this show on December 7th, 2018. Before we get going, I would like to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have questions or comments about the show, or if you have anything you'd like us to talk about in the future. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Just search for the World Business Academy. All right. So, Ronaldo, you wanted to start a little bit talking about the fact that today is December 7th.
1: Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's it's an interesting day. Uh, December 7th, of course, is Pearl Harbor Day, meaning it's the day that we recall the tragedy of the surprise bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. And I think one of the interesting things to reflect on today is not just an era of bygone enmity between the United States and Japan, but the flip side. You know, in keeping with the fact that we try to always find the positive side, even the most negative news, it's interesting to look at what's happened to the relationships in the world since 1941. December 7th, 1941 was when Pearl Harbor occurred. It's interesting to look back and say, gee, you couldn't have picked a worse enemy than Japan. And the horror stories of World War II are true. The Bataan Death March actually happened. Many, many, many thousands of Korean women were pressed into becoming sex slaves to the Japanese army. Many of the interrogation techniques of the Japanese were what gave rise to international abhorrence. that codified mm-hmm. now. In the into, Geneva Convention In the Geneva Conventions. So in many, many ways, if you look at that bygone era, and you could say, Why, well, gee, how could it, such a craven population that permitted such incredible wrongs to occur in their name. How could they have not ended up on the dustbin of history? And yet Japan remains the third largest economy in the world. And has survived twenty years, twenty two years, unbelievably bad economic news. And has been, unfortunately, and even the good parts of Japan you have to acknowledge today, you know, Japan is probably one of the most racist countries in the world. Maybe very few countries besides Japan. You could argue Israel, certainly South Africa before uh, Mandela. The fact that you can live in Japan as a Korean for two generations and still not be eligible to be a Japanese citizen because the Japanese believe that they are, as a people, directly descended from the sun god. And, and that's hence the, the flag, the rising sun, and all that sort of thing. And what it gave rise to was this belief, xenophobia, that you could do anything because you were the children of the sun god and it could, be not, it could never be wrong. And I would say that was Japanese culture expressing to the nth degree what we would today call American exceptionalism. In other words, the pride that goeth before the fall is the belief that you are somehow related to the gods and therefore you can do no wrong even when you do wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Japanese learned that lesson in a terrible way in World War II. Um, Putting aside for a minute how the war ended with the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because it would have ended in any event with a Japanese defeat. Whether Truman was correct, we would have lost a million men invading Japan, and they would have lost 10 million, I don't know. But clearly, the Japanese were done Mm -hmm. by the time Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened. And the only question was, what's the quickest way to end this? And it was not going to end quickly. My reason for mentioning that is I have tremendous respect for Japan as a country today. I'm a I'm, I'm up, little upset, frankly, about their continued racism, mm-hmm. but I hope they get that straight because that's what's now causing them a crisis in immigration. The Japanese economy is in deep yogurt because they don't have enough young people.
0: Right. And that it, their need for workers is causing them to do odd things with, Robots and other other—they're looking for other ways of helping to care for their population yeah. in the absence of enough people to do some of the the, the work that needs to be done because there's such an aging population.
1: Yeah, and and so why is that helpful for all of our listeners today? It's helpful because when you hear all this stuff about immigration right now, Germany actually did themselves a favor. They're going to come to find out—not politically, but they're going to find out in terms of. The million point one people they let in—that's going to revitalize the German economy in ten years. Now the East Germans don't get that yet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the older ones, because they're still suffering from what they haven't yet been able to rehabilitate. So East Germany happens to be very anti-Merkel these days, because she's East German, and they thought she'd come in on a white horse and magically, you know, raise East German uh, economic. Standards to what they are in the West, in, in Germany, and, and that's just not possible in, in in one eleven or twelve or thirteen year period.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they've come up a tremendous amount, and now they're they're resentful of the immigrants coming in below them. When in fact they should really welcome them because it's those immigrants, those German, those those immigrants to Germany that are going to pay into the social services expense budget for the next thirty years, so the East Germans can to retire. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. But now I want to go back to Japan, and we'll we'll, we'll end. So what I want to reflect on with Japan is we're going to spend more time on this program next year uh, looking at other countries. And in particular, I wanted to mention that Japan has become one of America's best allies, as has Germany, the two countries we fought the hardest. That happened because we stood for certain principles that we are now abandoning. When I say I'm pro-immigration, first of all, I think everybody knows I'm an immigrant, so of course I've got a vested interest in immigration. But I, I think it's more than a vested interest. I believe in the fact that the, the the miracle that is America occurred because of immigration. We were a country with very small population. We had an enormous amount of, of territory. What we did to the American Indians is terrible. But at the end of the day, even with what we did to them, we still had tons of room for all kinds of people from all kinds of cultures who fled. And I'm I'm, I'm never I never forget the words inscribed at the base of the, of the of the Statue of Liberty: "Bring me your tired, your poor, your." Wretches yearning to be free. These the tempest tossed bring to me. I stand beside the golden door. I light my lamp beside the golden door. Well, that quote talks to the idea of people seeking a better life in America from wherever they started. And that, to me, is why we have such an amazing country. Because the people who wanted a better life is who self-selected to come here. Mm -hmm. People don't come here because things are good where they are. They come here because they aren't as good as they could be here. Or they're very bad. In some cases, let's take Central America, they're fleeing unbelievable death and destruction from the gangs. And that's going to continue for the foreseeable future, even though I do predict in within 10 to 12 years it will die down, because the drug wars will start to abate within a few years. So w- whether you're coming from Honduras because you're scared for your life, you're fleeing the drug gangs, or whether you're coming from the Sahara to Germany because you can't survive in a growing desert, or whether you're coming from what was Syria to North Africa and Europe because you can't survive in Syria, or whether you are dying like 14 million people are in Yemen because your, war has been, your, your, your life has been consumed by war with heavy civilian casualties. Whatever the reason is that you're coming, you choose to get here and you fight to get here, and that says something about who you are and what you're willing to do. And when the people who fight the hardest to get here end up here, we have the miracle that America became. I think that um, what Japan did, since World War II, is it took stock of itself as more of an equal among nations and stopped seeing itself as the dominant player in the globe because they were the, the children of the sun god. I do not think the Chinese have learned that lesson yet. Mm-hmm. we are to talk about China in a minute. So the Chinese still believe in thousand-year cycles because they see themselves, the Chinese. It's sometimes dangerous to generalize, but in this case it's probably accurate. The Chinese see themselves as a very special group of people, the inhabitants of the Middle Kingdom. Hmm. So they, are, they, they see themselves over such long periods of time that what we look at in the West as a long period of time, 100 years or 500 years, they look at that and blink and go, that's no big deal. We've had emperors that, you know, lineages that lasted that long. So I want to just connect with the fact that on Pearl Harbor Day, if we see what we learned from the past, and, we, and we're willing to learn from it so that those people did not die in vain in the battleship Arizona, so, so that those people who died in the conflagration which Pearl Harbor became that day, and the treachery that they had, they, well, they probably were, the president was probably warned, but no one else knew it was coming, and he didn't believe it, or if he did believe it, he didn't realize the power of that strike, that airstrike. However it came to pass that that tragedy, that enormous tragedy occurred, what we've learned from them, if you're the Japanese, is, oh, we are inhabitants of a planet, and we're one of many nations, and from that new awareness, Japan has arisen. And Japan stands, with the exception of its racism, Japan stands as one of the solid pillars of the international community in part because it needs to trade for its existence. So that's great. Other problems with Japan, we've got. Number two, we should look at the fact that when we we celebrate what they learned in becoming the nation that they are today with all that, I mean, characterize the difference of Japan at the end of 1945 versus the, the Japan of today, and it's it's, it's so miraculous, you couldn't have conceived it mm-hmm. if you were alive then. The same thing has to be said about America. If we learn from what we've done wrong, where we have fallen away from our basic precepts, we're going to end up rediscovering what made us great in the first place. And then the second Pax Americana can begin. If we do not, America will continue to fall absolutely certain to a lesser and lesser Influence in the world to a lesser and lesser amount of wealth in the world to a lesser amount of wealth for itself, and I believe into violence, into actual violence. Mm-hmm. And so let's learn from the past and let's not repeat those mistakes. And certainly let's remember what made America great in the first place. And I'd say it's two things one, it's immigration. And number two, it believed in principles more than it believed in transactions. We've got a government now, and I'm not just blaming Trump here, but everybody in the government, uh, the most part, not everybody, virtually the entire Republican Party. And a few members of the Democratic Party believe that we can act in such a way that because we are, quote, exceptional, which we're not, no more than the Japanese were exceptional in 1941, we can afford to not have principle driven government, both domestically and internationally. That we can transact government. Mm-hmm. We can actually trade for what we want and get it. Now, it's the it's incumbent on everybody in this country, in the United States, who can hear this in True in other countries where you are, where you have your own governments, if it's a democracy. The price of democracy is an informed citizenry that is activated in votes. That's the price of democracy. And we have to realize that because we fell asleep here. We got too comfortable. And this whole thing is coming ungrude. The wheels are coming off the bus of America every day. And we've got to say to ourselves, oh, my goodness, we've got to get this back. When you think of the positions that were considered radical a year ago when Bernie Sanders, or two years ago when Bernie Sanders first articulated here, I'll give you a partial list because I'm fascinated by this. Well, what makes it great? I mean, it's like yeah. Medicare for all. I mean, it was considered a radical idea. 70% of the public is in favor yeah. of it. The idea of a free college education has now got about a 50% support. Right. Now
0: the, the, All of these, all of the these things which were in the, quotes, the far, far progressive uh, platform. It's mainstream it's now becoming mainstream, which I think is tremendous. Just to to finish up the idea or the thought about December 7th and Pearl Harbor Day, I just want to acknowledge that George H.W. Bush, in his passing, he was the last president who actually served in the war in World War II. And it's sort of an interesting time if you look at this last 70, 75 years and the end of this first Pax Americana. And the concept of what is our greatness? And and I, li- I like the two the two principles or the two characteristics that you I highlighted, which was the immigration and the fact that we are a nation of immigrants, and that that is the 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 bottom sort of that what it that's what America is.
2: Yeah, we, and that
0: idea of that, and the other which is principled leadership and being the the moral authority in the world, and it, that's that was that was the it, characterization our self characterization after World War II. Yeah.
1: And, and, and I just want to link, it's, it's not only that it felt good, you know, we all felt good about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We felt like we were the leaders of the free world. We felt like we were bringing democracy mm-hmm. to the planet. We felt like we were reconstructing the globe. And we were. And we got rich doing it. Right. My, my point is, people think, well, you can't be a nice guy because you won't make enough money. That's just so crazy. Right. Nice guys make more money. More money. I mean, nice guys finish first, not last, you know? Yeah. And when a, when a guy who's not nice finishes first, it's usually because some fraud or deceit occurred. I would submit the most recent presidential mm-hmm. elections per, per, per proof of that. Yeah. I would also say the blue the, the yeah. wave that just happened. So, so I think what we, we want to talk about today is having just dwelled on this historical opportunity to mm-hmm. reflect. Remember what we can create. Let's not forget what we created from 1941. When that occurred, most people thought, the United States was dead, would not survive, that we could not hold the Pacific, the Japanese would take the Pacific, the Germans would beat us in Europe, and the rest would be history. That didn't happen. And it didn't happen not because we were necessarily luckier. I think we were smarter. And I think the people who fought that war for us, by and large were immigrants, the people who made the tanks, by and large immigrants, the people who built kept the economy going, by and large, immigrants. And so, if we f- if we forget that, we will, like Japan, face a day when we don't have enough young people paying into Social Security for the old people to retire. It's just crazy.
0: Much less enough people to take care of the old people who, right. are, who are needing that help, because that's you know most of our our healthcare workers, a huge percentage of them are born overseas. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. And so
1: so I guess what I'm trying to say here, and why it's so important, is this is a conversation about business and society. And what I want people to understand is the two are so intimately tw- intertwined. Mm-hmm. This is what Wall Street got wrong. Uh, this is what it's getting wrong now. It thinks it can, it can basically depress the middle class by stealing more money and reallocating at the top 1%, 2% through its taxing policies, through the policies which no longer provide free education. I mean, remember, we are the country that invented free high school education. Why isn't it free college today? Because everybody knows you can't get along on a high school degree anymore. So where did that go? Where did the idea go when, we, when we, we used to have a belief here? We were the original barn raisers. You know, we'll help our neighbor, and our neighbor will help us. Where did that go? We're the country that welcomed every immigrant that wanted to come. Where did that go? Mm-hmm. Now, and, and not to say we didn't go through immigrant phobia in the past. I mean, like, but but we, we kept resorting it, resorting it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of amazing. And If you look around the world today, I think there's a good yardstick. Look at the Muslim cultures around the world. And what you'll see is there's only one country where Muslims have basically settled, two maybe, where they've settled and they've become part of the fabric of that society. They haven't maintained a separateness. The United States is one and Canada is the other. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else, they're like in little ghettos. They can't break out. They're perceived as a a minority.
0: I would say that they are perceived as a minority, but to some extent the U.K. has also... um, Yes uh, and no, more
1: Indian than Muslim. They,
0: they well, haven't done
1: a great right, job the, on Muslim. The mayor of London. Uh, the mayor of London is a good—that's the exception that proves the rule, right. I think. Okay,
0: yeah. Okay. well, this is really interesting, and I think maybe well, it's we should— Yeah, because you know what's interesting about it? It's interesting
1: because if, if people stop and think, what makes us affluent? What makes us great? What makes us great? And since we're trying to talk about how people can pay their bills and feel better about themselves, whenever you get a topic where you can point out, hey, what feels good actually is better for you financially, it's great for us to tie that together. So— that's, that's sort well put, of well where put. I'm coming from. Okay, okay so, so where want, are we going to go? I want to
0: jump into the indicators and the stock market. Okay, that, let's, talk, let's yeah. talk
1: about the stock market. Okay. So, so everybody, um, today we're doing this show on December 7th, obviously, and the market dropped another 560 points today. So we are now officially at a correction. The correction is defined as 10% below a recent high. The S&P, which is a much better gauge than the Dow of overall economic activity, because there's 500 companies in it, and not 30. And second of all, because the number of the constituents of the S&P 500 changes with less frequency than the Dow as a percentage. So given that's the case, the S&P is a better indicator of the overall economy. To the extent that stocks indicate the economy, what the S&P 500 is indicating is we have now got what's called a formal correction, a 10% drop. This is the opening bell. It's not the end of the correction. The correction has barely started. I will be shocked if we don't drop another 10 to 15% relatively soon and in a continuous pattern. So every time you see the market go up by 50 to 100 points one day or 200 or 300, watch for it to come down that or more the next day. Because, and we talked about this the last show, as the dead cat bounce. Remember that? And, I, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that PETA doesn't like that term, as I said in the last show. Right. I wonder what their,
0: their substitute. <laughs> but,
1: but, I, but it's because it's a technically a financial term, which you can look up on Wikipedia, I, I, I use it so that people understand. When we talked about that, and, and we turned out we were right, because the next day the market dropped 600 points. What we're talking about is how there's always going to be some bounce back and forth, even when you're in a dropping market. So the, the way to look at the Dow or the S&P 500, I'll now switch to the Dow, because Trump takes the Dow and has made it into this thing. He, he, he's convincing people was synonymous with the health of the U.S. economy, even when the economy was increasingly unhealthy. That was a mistake because the market's just the market. The market isn't the economy. The market can be a good predictor of the future of the economy, and I think it's doing that now, but it's just the market's just the market. So when Trump turned the market into this barometer, this yardstick by which to judge his success at the economy, it has an impact, and now that it's turning down and will continue to turn down, it will have an impact as well. So behavior will change. So one of the things, you, if you didn't notice it, you know we've talked for about a year on the show about the, the VIX, a uh, so-called worry index. Uh, it's, it's shot above any recent high mm-hmm. recently, in the last day or two, and will continue going up, I believe.
0: Well, and just to, to reiterate, what is the VIX? What is the, the worry VIX, index? The VIX, the VIX. is, is yeah. the index
1: that goes up the worse people are afraid Okay. In the, in the economy. The more fear, the more the VIX rises. The less fear, the VIX drops. It's a long story how they get that. That's basically what it's used for, is a barometer of up and down. Now, the reality from the point of view of the economy is that the Dow and the S&P 500 is not synonymous with the GDP. However, because Trump has made it that, it will have this enormous effect on behavior. And behavior is a direct Mm -hmm. thing that causes the GDP to go up. Now, People's confidence in the future causes them to spend or not spend. It causes them to take risks or not take risks. And when you have a depressed—when you've got—I'm going to say everybody's not in the top 10% hasn't been doing particularly great for about 40 years. If you're below the top 25%, you've been going backwards. If you're at the 50 percentile or below it, you've gone dramatically backwards. Mm -hmm. So an inverted wealth distribution, which we know is happening since the 70s.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about that also for the last few months.
1: And we've been talking about it, so now it's coming home to roost because, and I I used to use the expression, you you can't hollow out the economy. If the middle class can't spend, since we're a consumer-driven economy, the economy's got to go down. So we talk about fundamentals. In fact, I want to sh- uh, just c- a couple of numbers that's interesting. In We said, starting in, in 2017, that we thought the market would go sideways or down, not up. It's gone completely sideways up until now, and now it's going down. So we're mm-hmm. now going to be below 2017 yeah. in a few, in a and, few weeks. And- Number two, we said gold would go sideways or up. It's gone sideways and not that far up. It'll start to go up again. And... I said to everybody, if you put your money in gold, you're going to at least hold. You're going to hold your money. You're not going to lose it, and you'll be able to sleep at night that it's not going to go down. People who put it into the gold did well. People who bought the VIX did even better. People who bought who short. There's a man named David Vogel who built a fund that shorts oil stocks. David, who was a gazillionaire before this is now an even richer gazillionaire, obviously, right? Because he's shorted oil stocks. That's
0: probably the best bet you can make. <laughs> yeah,
1: and by the way, I don't think you can keep shorting them. I, I don't think oil stocks are going to stay at this level much longer. Yeah. And, you know, oil's back up. Uh, OPEC, uh, late in the day, announced a cutback of 1.1 million barrels a day. and We burn about 100 million barrels a day globally. Uh, and so that's about a 1.1% drop in production if they pull it off. They think 800,000 of those barrels will come from... Saudi Arabia and OPEC, and the other 400,000 non-OPEC members. Interestingly enough, the largest producer in the world right now, the United States, actually is not part of that deal. Mm-hmm. And Trump's viewing this as an opportunity to, you know,
2: Spam drill production. even more. Yeah.
1: Uh, and so he's going to increase drilling on federal wildlands by, I think, something in the order of magnitude of 10 million acres. It's like the new proposal. So, and these are all areas which previously were... were set aside for endangered species.
2: Now, mm-hmm.
1: why is this important? It's important because everybody listening to the show needs to know this is not the time to go buy stocks because you think it's a temporary dip. And what you're going to hear Wall Street people saying soon, if they, well, some have already started saying, oh, buying opportunity, markets down, quick buy before it starts to go back up again. It's not going back up again. I was shocked the other day. I, I heard that 80% of all the economists that are routinely polled on their views of the economy, 80% believed that the recession would start By 2020, a lesser number, something like 35% thought it was going to start by 2019. Now, here's what I find fascinating about that. We've been talking about this recession coming on for a while. I was surprised that the tax bill went through because it was so favored to the rich. Um, But it did, and we called that a sugar high we said that's going to have no lasting positive impact and when the sugar high ends which it's en- it's ended at this point you're going to see the economy start to turn down because that was an artificial boost to the economy okay that boost is over and we can see right now no lasting impact right except the 2% are even richer than they were before and the other 98 didn't do so good
0: yeah, and a couple a couple of uh, indicators on that. I mean, the yield curve. We were talking a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah, we could talk about yield curve. I mean, I mean, we talked. To the, we said the yield curve will invert, and when it does, you got fifteen to eighteen months till you get into recession. In a normal context, that's true. It isn't going to take fifteen to eighteen months this time. Why? Because Trump is shooting himself in both feet, and we <laughs> It turns out the feet he's shooting are our feet. <laughs> I mean, the guy. You know, I can't believe it. the worst thing he could have done. When he created a tax break like he did for the rich, which put unbelievable strain on the ability for little people to spend, when he did that, he either didn't know, probably the case, he certainly doesn't have smart people around him. I mean, if you call Larry Cudlow smart, you've got to have a very, very narrow definition of smart, uh, low expectation. So he didn't realize, apparently, that when you do that, not only does it decrease spending, it also depresses people's willingness to take chances because their savings aren't building up. So if your savings aren't building up you can't take chances and taking chances means you can't do things which small businesses, the largest Yeah,
0: again going back to your your Earlier assertion that behavior will change now that stock market has gone down, which is yeah, e- it'll change faster. It's, it's, it'll change faster. Yeah, it'll change yeah. So, so you well, won't have to wait eighteen worried. months
1: for the recession. It's going to hit right. twenty nineteen. In right. fact, we're sliding into it as we speak. And this
0: is despite, I mean, we had a decent jobs report or a, a... no,
1: no, we didn't. No, no, I won't talk about that because we did yeah. not have a decent job. No, we had a terrible jobs report, and it was terrible for two reasons. One, second month in a row, we added one hundred fifty thousand jobs. Okay, that's not replacement. Mm-hmm. In this economy, it's gotta be, replacement's gotta be up around 185,000. Mm-hmm. So we're 35,000 jobs short of where we should be, and the unemployment rate didn't change. That tells me conclusively, the unemployment rate's getting played with. Mm-hmm. Because we've had two months in a row where we should've gone, it should've, go, the unemployment rate should've Fun. ticked up. Uh, so how does the, the labor department manage it so that you get the number they want? The way they manage is they declare that fewer people are looking for work. So if they're 35,000 short, break even, they go oh 40,000 people stopped looking for work well who are these 40,000 people if it's a 3.7 percent unemployment economy for real why would anybody stop looking for work you can walk out the door and get a job i mean basically if you come in breathing you're going to get a job at 3.7 because that's not a true number it's being manipulated so the jobs report you want to look at was 150,000 people got hired that's not good and two months in a row, particularly not good. So the labor car, they come out spinning the silliness, and I can't believe the number of financial reporters who bought the spin, but the market didn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The stock market said, "Wait a minute, 150,000
2: is not a good number." It, and, it and fell. It fell. It fell. The
1: fell. The stock. Yeah. And in fact, I didn't see this article you, you just put in front of me, but well, yeah. So disappointing is the word that most of my economist friends that know what they're talking about said about that
0: mm-hmm. hiring.
1: That number of people, that's not good. So we had a disappointing jobs report. To me, what's important is that people realize you can't put the money in the market yet, so you got to keep sitting on it. The risk of putting it into gold is that inflation will not go up, and if inflation doesn't go up, gold probably won't either. However, the risk that inflation will go up is greater than that it won't. In fact, the fear I have is of inflation kicking in together with a declining economy, which is called stagflation.
0: Which and is, that wasn't isn't that what J- Japan has been suffering?
1: Japan has been suffering from for a decades. form of it, but not, but not a severe form. The The, the one that you got to look at is back in the 70s. Stagflation was running a 19% inflation, and the economy was going down. Uh, that's yeah. when you have a real problem. Mm-hmm. And that's you've heard of the Volcker Rule. Mm-hmm. Paul Volcker was the head of the Fed who broke that pattern. And the Volcker Rule, which has now been eliminated by the Republicans, unfortunately was set up to separate what banks did with their money that was gambling versus what banks did with your savings, and under the Glass Steagall was also a part of that. What's happening is the rollback of all these regulations on the banks, which we put in place. Some of them before 2008, many of them after 2008, and they're now all being rolled back. So get ready for a 2008 or worse. Mm-hmm. And as as people know, listen to the show. I've been saying for a while, and then Paul Tudor Jones agrees, and frankly, the chairman of Goldman Sachs agrees. We have such a weak international financial system right now. Mm -hmm. This recession could very well be worse than 2008, which was the worst one since the Great Depression. So we're talking a serious, really serious problem here. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next year because I'm predicting or projecting there'll be so much political craziness in D.C. that it may be that we can't do anything positive on the economy. And at the rate it's spinning down, that's very, very sad. Mm-hmm. So if you look at today and you say, okay, is the stock market itself the harbinger of the GDP? It shouldn't be on its own, but it will because it's not going to depress behavior. It's going to depress people psychologically. When you add to that all the fundamentals we've been talking about all along, about consumption patterns, about levels of consumer debt, levels of, of federal debt, levels of corporate debt, the corporate bond market is, is dropping like a stone right now okay? People are going, whoop, better get out of the corporate bonds because they're going to have a bad year next year because people aren't going to buy as much stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see all these stories come out one at a time after another after another. You're also seeing oil prices getting artificially jacked up by our friend Saudi Arabia. I got to tell you, I'm just going to digress on this one. Trump sold a large section of the public, even people who are not Trumpies, on the idea that his relationship with Saudi was keeping the Saudis from pumping too much oil, pumping too little oil, and that because of his direct personal relationship with the Saudis, he, Trump, was keeping them from reducing the production and thereby keeping oil prices low. As recently as a week ago, he bragged about that, that the reason he wasn't gonna tell the truth about the assassination of Khashoggi was because he didn't want to ruin the relationship with Saudi, which was the reason he said, Oil prices were so low. Well, he was wrong. That isn't why they were so low. It's a so whole other story. But it just goes to show you that even though he didn't say anything about the Saudi government on the Khashoggi killing, he's, and he's, he's certainly not saying anything to them about the atrocities in Yemen, they raised it. They, they lowered the production anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so much for his personal relationship.
0: Right. I mean, on, on those, uh, <laughs> Benjamin just pointed out that since OPEC was created, has cheated on its production benchmarks 96% of the time. So yeah. no matter what they're saying, they're going to be producing. Well, and you they don't know. You don't they often. do
1: cheat, but you see the other thing is you used to have OPEC and non-OPEC. Mm-hmm. So Russia, which is the largest non-OPEC, used to be. Now the U.S. and Russia are the two largest. And
0: Qatar non-OPEC. just dropped Carpet, out. Of, Qatar
1: just dropped out of OPEC, of but OPEC. that's because they're not pumping oil anyway. Right. Qatar they're out going Natural gas. They're gas. They're yeah. gas. You know, there's a lot of reasons why Qatar dropped out. I mean, political reasons and, and economic reasons. But if but 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 the non-OPEC block is now. More aligned with OPEC than ever. Russia Russia desperately needs the money, mm-hmm. so that they desperately want to keep it above fifty dollars a barrel, and that won't work. I mean, I, I saw a laughable report from the U.S. government claiming that the amount of economic activity next year, which they're projecting, they were projecting three point two percent growth in the economy next next year. Just three weeks ago, they dropped it to two five or. That's full of baloney. It's not going to be that. Is
0: that for the U.S. economy? Yeah, yeah, the U.S. economy. and
1: It's not going to be that. No, the global, they were looking at 1.2, and now I'm saying it's going to go negative next year. Right. So the, the point of the story is that the Russians, it's funny, the Iranians and the Saudis all have one thing in common with Trump, and that is they all want oil prices higher. And even though Trump says he doesn't, come on, all of his donors that are oil people do. Yeah. At fifty bucks a barrel, you can make money fracking. At sixty dollars a barrel, you make a lot of make money. A lot of money. Because as we've predicted in the past, fracking is about a you can make a profit at forty five dollars a barrel. Right. And it may be even lower now because they become more efficient.
0: This might be a good time to actually transition to talking a little bit about some of the environmental uh, reports oh, yeah. that came out, and and I mean the we'll context of one. fossil fuels and, Let's and start with a good one. Pumping it out of the ground or leaving it there.
1: Yeah. Start with a good one. So we're gonna we're gonna uh we have to tell our listeners this is our last well, we're gonna keep doing this show once a month, don't worry. But we're gonna add a new show once a week. Which we're gonna do, we've been we just entered into an agreement with the highest power station for AM radio here in Santa Barbara is twelve ninety. And we've just contracted to do a weekly show every Friday from five to six PM. So that's drive time in the santa barbara area and drive time in santa barbara is like a parking lot out there on 101 it's it's really crowded so we will have captive listeners next year from five to six and we're going to call that show solutions news so i want to announce that today uh we will carry repeats of it i think the stations agreed to carry two repeats i think we're talking about one repeat is going to air at five o'clock on saturday and i think 9 a.m on sunday is the second repeat.
0: Yeah, it's it's there'll be a couple more live repeats or, or broadcast yeah. repeats, and then we'll also produce it edited slightly as a podcast.
1: Or maybe not even, I don't even know, because one of the things we can do is we're going to have cameras, which is kind of cool. And we're going to do interviews, which I'm really looking forward to. So we're going to have friends of mine come by for interviews, and that's going to be fabulous. And that show is only going to deal with optimistic news. And we're not going to cover the stuff that I have to cover here, which is like dirty laundry, right? Yep. But remember, folks, if you don't look at dirty laundry, you never clean it. And if you don't clean it, you got dirty laundry. <laughs> so you want to keep your laundry clean. <laughs> so we have to point out the dirty laundry. So we are going to do solutions. But one of the things we want to pre- you know, keep integrating into our show, for those of you who are listening who aren't members of Optimus Daily, if you haven't already signed up for your free subscription, you should do that right away. You're going to be very happy that you did. It's a great free service. And you can pick how many times a week you want it to come to your inbox. And the idea is start your day with a positive, news story. Well, one of the stories today, there were five great stories today, but one of them was about Kenya, the country of Kenya in Africa, which is on track. It's, it's doing about 70% of its energy Cur- right now. Currently, right. 70% yeah. is currently for renewables. And they want to get to 100%. One of the reasons they are doing so well is because of uh, thermal, geothermal, there, and which to me is the energy source, one of the huge untapped resources mm-hmm. in the future. But they also have a lot of wind and they have uh, solar, obviously. So Kenya's going to get to 100% within, I'm going to guess, a couple of years.
0: Yeah, their target is to have 100% renewable electricity generation by 2020.
1: Yeah, so, so
0: that's really— That's less it's
1: than 10 years. That's like we're a talking— A lot
0: less? That's two years. Two years,
1: right? <laughs> and the reason I take 10 is because 10 is a number that's coming up in the space now because that's the number of years we said California could go to 100% green. That's our moonshot project. And we said they could go to 100% renewable within 10 years or less at no additional cost to the repair. When we first said that five and a half, six years ago, people laughed at it. To now, I, Today, I think the smartest money in the, in the state would say that's absolutely doable. Well, the reason that's an important number is because... And by the way, you know that the president of Kenya... Now, there's a lot of questions as to whether or not he had stuffed the ballot box. So
2: we'll, we'll go there.
1: But he's the son of the founder of Kenya. I didn't
2: the current know that. president
1: is the, is the son of Jumo Kenyatta, the founding father of hmm. Kenya, modern-day Kenya. So what the son is doing is giving Kenya finally the permanence because he realizes the oil bills were killing Kenya. Every developing country has a heck of a time paying for fossil fuel because it goes up faster than whatever you can export. I mean, you got bananas and you're in the Caribbean. The price of bananas doesn't go up anywhere near as fast as the fossil fuel does. So you're always getting further and further enslaved to a colonial global economy. You can break that enslavement when you create your own energy.
0: Talk about energy independence. That's right. Yeah.
1: That's right. And so Jumo Kenyatta, who gave political independence to Kenya, his son is delivering yeah. energy independence.
0: And that's Uhuru Kenyatta.
1: Yeah, Uhuru, which, by the uh, way... Uhuru
0: means freedom. Which
1: means freedom. That's how my we got that name. My son, it's
0: my son's middle name is Uhuru. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So Uhuru, of course, was named that because of mm-hmm. his father. Now, where do I want to go with this? Well, I was so pleased that finally, when the, and we're going to talk about the Black Friday report. So the Friday, Black Friday report is a report they came out on Friday after Thanksgiving Thanks. this year.
0: It was was released by the the U.S. government on that day.
1: Yes, and it's a a report that's required by Congress. I forget how often they have to reissue it, but they they have to issue it periodically. And so the Trump people couldn't stop it from happening, so they talked to all the scientists that were still left in government, which there's fewer and fewer every day, unfortunately, (laughs) that know anything about climate change. And what they said was, uh, among other things, that there's going to be a loss of 10% of the U.S. economy by 2100 if we don't change our ways. What they also said was, whereas the IPCC in its report three weeks earlier, the IPCC said, you know, we got about 12 years to really start turning turn this thing around. The federal report says we've got 12 years to get it done. Right. That's very close That's to the a- 10 years we talked mm-hmm. about. Okay. And so if we need like a, a moonshot project for the U.S., which is doable. It's very doable because we know how to electrify our transportation system. We know how to electrify our energy system. So there's no reason not to do it. And we'll create gazillions of jobs and wealth if we do. And that wealth will end in the middle class where it belongs. And by the way, it ought to be paid for by the upper class. I'm going to come back to that because I'm going to touch yeah. about France.
0: and Which we should, but that is the Green New Deal, which is being proposed by Casia cortez
1: Right, which we are a signatory which to. Which we're
0: a signatory to. We're, we're, we're supporting that. It exactly talks about how to transition off of fossil, fossil fuels and the boon to the economy if we... Really do put that investment together. Massive. the For the... Massive. It's it's, it's taking us...
1: We've been enslaved by the oil companies since the early 1900s. There's been three lobbying groups in the last 30 years that have dominated U.S. politics. The NRA, which is now starting to Mm -hmm. collapse. Starting to break. The pharmaceutical industries, which is now the most powerful and spends the most by far, three to four times more than the oil companies spend, believe it or not. Big Pharma. And last, of course, fossil fuels. Now... Right. That's slavery. The metaphor I want to give you is it's sort of like when in the old days when you worked at a mine in the coal mines of West Virginia and you had to live in a company house and you had to shop at the company store. And what they knew when they did that was you'd never get to break even. You'd live your whole life thinking you were free but you were enslaved because your housing... And the company store ate up everything they paid you. Right. So you stayed in permanent poverty. And that's how we got the hollows of.
0: That's the indentured servitude. That's the indentured servitude that, that this modern. country was built upon.
1: Yeah, with regard to fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, I want to announce for the record the real numbers, not the ones you're going to hear, is not that you're going to have a 10% loss in GDP by 2100. You're going to see that 10% loss of the economy, I'm going to say by 2035 or sooner. So they're saying 2100, which is 65 years later than I'm saying. I'm saying that the beginning of the end of human civilization, as you know it, is 2035, and it will be clearly over by 2060, which is 40 years be- before they're even more international sea. I want to say that the, the emissions, uh, the U.S. emissions this year, which I believe were 1.7% higher last year, this year they're 2.5% or 3%, 3, it was over 3% higher this year, and are increasing because of the war on the environment that this administration is waging. Mm-hmm both in terms of the air emissions, in terms of the water. They're now trying to roll back the Waterways Act so that you can pollute anywhere you want in the country. I mean, it's just it's insane what we are doing to ourselves. And we, the people of this country, are permitting it because we put these people in office, or didn't, but they got in office, and we didn't stop it. We just did a blue wave, which means the House is now back under control. But the Senate's wildly out of control.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: what's got to happen immediately, starting in January, People all over this country have to get clear on their values. So I'm going to list what, basically, this was Bernie Sanders' platform when uh, two years ago. And everything I'm about to list has either 65% support in the public or higher. With the one exception being, uh, I think, free college education maybe is at 57%. But it's clearly over a majority. Okay. But more than 70% believe that we should have Medicare for All, mm-hmm. universal health care. Finally, out of 28 industrial nations will join the group.
0: Will finally become... A first world nation. Yeah, and I want to speak healthcare. as a Canadian.
1: I got to. People say Canadians don't like their healthcare system. Like heck, we love our healthcare system. We think we got a great health healthcare system. And and you ask any Canadian if they don't like their healthcare system, I've never met a Canadian that doesn't like his healthcare system. Okay, so you've got to have universal healthcare. You've got to repair our broken bridges, and you've got to start building real public transit, inner city trains, city trains, and we don't need to do bullet trains, and we don't have to go five hundred miles an hour. If we could just get from L.A. to San Francisco in eight hours, I'd be happy. And that's only 380 miles. And we don't have any of the rail distribution networks we need to get our suburbs connected to our metropolitan areas. So we have this whole massive infrastructure project. If we were to spend it all at one time, and we won't because of inflation, and you're talking about probably something in the order of $50 billion or more it has to be put almost immediately in infrastructure. And my guess is, in order to get it done right, you're probably talking $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. But when you spend that $2 trillion, the vast majority of it's going to go to Americans. So instead of taking money out of our pockets to make some 2% person rich, so they could have a, a yacht that's 100 foot bigger than their last yacht, or an airplane that's you know, 20 feet longer than their last airplane, this way, the money goes to the people who need it to spend it, and therefore the consumer economy kicks in. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to heal America, hire Americans to build infrastructure. Guaranteed college education for free, universal, period. And we ought to do debt forgiveness on the debt we've already gotten college students, because otherwise, we're impairing an entire generation to never be able to get ahead. Right. And then they can't spend. It's interesting that student debt is the only other thing besides your taxes that cannot be expunged into bankruptcy.
0: Right. And, that's... and that got
1: written in by the banks. And by the way, the banks, when they get that money, take no risk because the government guarantees it. Right. So it's a hundred percent guaranteed, and are getting massive percentage. And, and
0: there's no personal. You can't get out from it of that. Can't get out from liability. It. No,
1: unless the government changes the rules. And which it needs to. I,
0: I think I sent you last week an article about how the millennial generation is "quotes" killing various industries. It's not because they have real market shifts. It's because they are much poorer than previous generations. They don't have the money to spend on. Of course not. Uh, houses on, on. Yeah, well, uh, take,
1: take houses, take houses. So the two industries that historically for the last four decades that have had the most effect on the overall GDP of the country have been housing and automobiles. What's getting creamed right now is housing and automobiles. Okay, So housing's been down now five months in a row and going to keep going down for the reasons you just gave and others. Cost of money's going up. Number of people that can afford a house is going down.
0: The Cost of materials is going up. Uh, tariffs doesn't help that at any. Oh
1: well, tariffs—that's insane because now you're paying <laughs> exactly. more for wood, Exactly. Right, Canada. Anyway, so you got you got the housing industry basically in, the, in a world of hurt and going to get worse. That's one of the fundamentals. You got the the automobile markets were already peaked out at sixteen million units a year on the way to 14 million. Now they're on their way down further from yeah. that. Um,
0: GM just lay, uh, cl- closing 15, down 15,000 yeah.
1: 15,000 people out of work at GM. And 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 you've got places like the Chinese this is so funny. The Chinese own Volvo, right? Volvo just built this massive plant in the south. I believe it was in South Carolina. And I could get the state wrong, but I believe it's South Carolina. And it was designed to build cars that were going to ship to China. <laughs>
0: I don't think that's going to work out very well. It's not going to work
1: out really well. So they're going to have to reconfigure that plant, and they're going to sell a lot less cars. Plus, they're dealing with the tariffs that cause the cars to get more expensive. And on top of that, instead of having a government that leads the automobile industry into new forms of transportation, this government is punishing people going to new forms of transportation. So another one of the Bernie Sanders planks is, we need to get renewable energy. No question. If Kenya can do it, we can do it. I mean, Kenya can do it, and we can't do it? Come on. Really, give me a break, please. Yeah. So when I look at the the fact that in my humble opinion, the tipping point on climate change isn't going to happen in twelve years, as the federal government warned. We've already passed the tipping point. And the question is, how bad will it get, how fast, and will we react at that point in time to save ourselves? So we have an accelerating runaway phenomenon now. Mm-hmm. And when we are fighting for scarce dollars and we have to, uh, right now, I, I saw a number, I don't know if it's accurate, but I think it came from the New York Times, $306 billion last year, not this year, last year, $306 billion was the cost of, quote, natural disasters, climate change, okay? Now, my guess is that's got to be over $400 billion this year, just from what I know happened, because well, you've got two yeah. hurricanes and you've got floods and you've got forest fires and if you add it all up, it's gotta be over and, it, and, and
0: it, it seems to be accelerating each year it over is, the past. Which is the, the hockey stick curve we talk years. about all the
1: time. Absolutely. Yeah. So the reason I'm mentioning this is I want people to focus on the fact that climate change is the world's worst problem and the world's biggest opportunity. If we address this issue effectively, we'll recreate wealth in the country and in the world beyond our wildest imagination. And the only thing holding us back is a restriction of the funds because we're, we're basically enslaved fossil fuel industry and we're kept broke by the pharmaceutical companies and a broken medical care system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Fix the medical care system. Fix big pharma. I can't, I can't get it out of my head that we pay 40% more for the same drugs in America that we make in America that the Germans pay for. And the reason is because Germany negotiates the drug of prices and, of course, gets them for 40% cheaper. And we permit them to gouge us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just insane. So we have now an opportunity to choose. We have to say, OK, if we don't have 12 years before the tipping point, if we're already at the tipping point, every day we don't do something better is hugely disadvantageous. And what now, at the very best, we've increased CO2 emissions at least 3% or more this year.
0: Right. And and on that note, I mean, talking about the need to really make changes, I mean, I wanted, I'd like to just mention the situation in France with with the the yellow vests, vest Macron trying to raise gas taxes a little bit to try to okay, let, let's go move to into a green yeah, economy. Yeah. But what happened there? Yeah,
2: okay, so
1: that's really important. First of all, I believe that the gas tax was voted on before Macron was elected. Actually, he was implementing a policy from the last administration because he liked the policy. Number two, because he had no political party when he got elected, he wasn't hearing the groundswell of objection. But I want to talk about the yellow vest strike in Paris because, in France, because people are misreporting it as a resistance to a carbon tax on gas by the French. That's not what happened. What happened was, and if you, if you, if you look at the man-on-the-street interviews that have been done by some of the best European press, what they're discovering is that the French populace basically erupted in anger over what's happened to the middle class. Mm-hmm. The gas tax was the proverbial straw on the camel's back.
0: Right, but, but it's the, really, that's a false, it's a false it's comparison. A false, it's not people versus Believe climates. me, the fossil
1: fuel companies are pushing that one. Yeah. But the truth of what has happened, the French middle class has been decimated. They've been hollowed out just like our middle class. Middle classes all over the world have been hollowed out. The plutocracies have been in charge, and as long as enough trickled down to the rest of us, um, they got away with it. They're not getting away with it because they've been so greedy, this last tax, massive tax benefit break to the top 2%. Massive by any definition. The repatriation of foreign earnings at the cost of it. Massive by any definition. Okay, And that happened because... When you've been greedy for a long time, it's hard to see what too greedy looks like. Mm-hmm. So you just keep grabbing more and more. And you, you don't think about the fact you are literally killing the goose that lays the golden egg when you squeeze the middle class. You, that story ought to be posted in the White House front door, <laughs> the, gold, the goose that you kill because you want the golden eggs. So what we need to do is look at the French are saying, we can't live. And when you gave us this extra tax, because the transportation system in France is not that good except for long distance. For what most people have to deal with every day getting to and from work, it's a 20-minute commute or more. Okay? So they, they're stuck in traffic like we are. Mm-hmm. And the idea of paying extra money on tax when they're already paying so much.
0: And they have meager wages. Very have, meager wages. They, they, have have, they have not grown. not grown. And, yeah. and
1: Macron is right that the productivity in France is basically hobbled by their labor laws. And he was making progress for changing those rules. Why did he stumble into this gas tax thing? Because he wasn't paying attention to how badly squeezed people were already. And notice that he put in a capital gains reduction at the same time. He did exactly the wrong thing.
0: poison pill.
1: Poison pill. It fits
0: right into his sense that he's completely out of touch. Because he
1: is a plutocrat. He also is a plutocrat. And so what's got to happen, people in France felt, is they literally had to take to the barricades. And it wasn't about the gasoline tax in isolation. It was about... All of it together. Yeah, it's about the
0: inequality gap.
1: It's the Indeed. inequality gap, yeah. and and, yeah. and and frankly, in some ways, it's worse in America than it is in France.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's amazing that the American public hasn't taken to the streets the way the French had. It's a compliment to our country that these massive marches we've been having since Trump was elected have produced so little in the way of positive benefit for the middle class and have stayed so nonviolent. Mm-hmm. It's really a miracle. But it, 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 my fear is it's going to change. Mm-hmm. My fear is that we're going to see violence before this is over. And Trump will undoubtedly encourage it. He, yeah. he, he already has. He thrives on it. He thrives on that. Thrives of on, of on that. that so so of of where are we for legions. conclusions? Where our conclusions are, climate change is the pressure cooker that if we were strong would break us. And since we are weak, are compounding the illness that we suffer from. This gross inequality. This inability to achieve a livable wage for people. And so we have a huge rewrite to do. And I started quoting about 10 minutes ago about Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders was perceived to be a wild-eyed radical progressive. And everything I just mentioned is actually mainstream. How he got painted that way. you know, Why people are picking on Elizabeth Warren because she only has one-sixteenth Cherokee <laughs> instead of one-eighth or whatever the number would be. They're picking on her because she's the founder of the the public finance corporation, which Trump has gutted. In fact, today he named the woman to run that up until now has had absolutely zero economic background. She was working in the budget department, Office of Management and Budget, doing basically public relations. And that's who he picked to run it, the CPB, because they have gutted it. Now, this is an agency in its first two years returned $13 billion to the American public. This is the agency that's been watching and cracking down on Wells Fargo, stealing from people. And they've got it. And, and by the way, you can do that for the banks. And the banks go, oh, great, our team won one. The trouble is, if you do it, in, it also has this other implication that then there's less money to spend because people get cheated out of more money, it, which is it's another way to take more money from the middle class, and that's what's happening. And there's so many of these stunts, and they're cumulative. It'd be, you know, you could get away with one or two, but you can't get away with cumulatively. That's why I keep talking about the fundamentals. The mm-hmm. fundamentals are broken. Yeah. And as a result, you're going to see this economy go deeper and deeper into recession in 2019.
0: I just want to remind you of that little uh, phrase that you came
1: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was saying to Chris the other day, the, the market... Basically, and, and
0: I think it's it, it's not just the market, but it, it characterizes a lot of the the, the economic the, thinking that has of been, the plutocracy of the plutocracy that's driving our yeah. our yeah. our current economy. You know, and you can and, see, and the you, know, world.
1: you know, I I don't want to pick on a single person because you talk about no. plutocracy; you got so many people in it. Yeah, but, you know, Betsy DeVos is classic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Never gone to public school in her life. Never let her kids go to a public school. Won't. And she's in charge of public education because basically she doesn't believe in public education. Yeah. Okay, that's a plutocrat. Yeah, she doesn't understand that for every for for probably eighty percent of the American public, if we don't have decent education, public education, our kids can't get ahead, and they stay enshrined, they stay enslaved. Mm -hmm. And Betsy's happy because she was born a billionaire, she married a billionaire, and she's going to remain a billionaire. Until one day they erect the guillotine. Until she, and they, and she says up her cake. head.
0: <laughs> exactly. But the phrase is, ah, yes, the markets or the plutocracies. Plutocracy, yeah. but the plutocracy's ability to ignore the obvious in pursuit of the impossible, funded by the unsuspecting.
1: Right. And then I went on to say, <laughs> it's like somebody walking into a bar and you, you see somebody who's really, really, Looks like they're having a great time because they're drunk, and you go, "Gee, bartender, I'll have whatever they're drinking," thinking that you can afford to get drunk too. And of course, you can't if what's coming is an IQ test a few minutes later, okay. or you have to do some uh, some task that requires manual dexterity, or you have to get in your car and drive home. Or, or, or. By the way, a quick one that just happened today: Uber and Lyft have been competing to see who could go public first. Uber was going to go in fall of twenty nineteen. The lift was going to go in April or May. Both of them have basically let the word out that they're going to go early in 2019 before the recession hits. Oh. And the article that I saw on this just today was funny. It was like if you're a unicorn, which is a company that achieved a billion dollars in, in, in asset value before going public, if you're a unicorn, better go public soon because the markets are closing down, in effect. And they are, as they should. Now Will that change us? Will this adversity change us so we start doing smart things again, or will it drive us to be so resentful of each other that we get violent with each other? That's the question.
0: I guess that's the question. And why don't we end it there? That's uh, oh
1: gosh, I hate to end it on a question like that, but okay. I mean, no, I I think that. Well, we we have
0: we have the choice. How how do we choose to react to this world? Is are we going to let the this downturn teach us? And are we going to learn from the, from the mistakes and actually come out of it stronger? Or are we going to continue to be at each other's yeah. throats?
1: You know, and I'd and I, I add this thought. At the darkest hours of World War II, the Battle of Britain, you know, when Churchill was asked you know, what would happen with Hitler on the shore ready to invade and buzz bombs destroying London, et cetera, and all the children in London were, were literally sent into the country so they wouldn't die, countryside. And he, you know, he said, we will, we will be victorious. And the reporter said, well, how can you say that when we're in all this world of hurt? And he said, because the opposite conclusion is absolutely unthinkable. So in one sense, the opposite conclusion that we won't learn is unthinkable. Because between climate change and what we're doing to ourselves economically and the threat of violence, particularly given how many weapons there are in this country and how few people own all those weapons, when you look at all that, you say, you know, it could go either way. Nothing is guaranteed. And my hope is that we would say that to each other and to ourselves, okay, how then shall we live? And, you know, I would hope what we would say is we can do this. We've had challenges before in the history of this nation that seemed insurmountable. People forget that we took on the largest military power in the world to win our independence. Mm-hmm. Now, Britain was the leading military power yeah. in the world, so we can do this. We can, okay. We and to Human end where we started. No one thought coming we were gonna,
0: togetherness.
1: No one thought we were going to survive the Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. attack, and we did. Uh, there are other things that have happened in our history yeah. where people were betting against us. I believe that we have the ingenuity. I have. the We have the resilience we got to go clean house. What most people would call a progressive agenda, I would call a healthy agenda. Mm-hmm. And as we enter into those healthier choices, we will remake our nation and the world. To the extent that we don't, we will pay the price.
0: And that's, and that's where we'll end today on this Pearl let's Harbor Let's hope Day. we don't pay the price. Let's hope we don't pay. Let's, let's not pay the price. Let's it's not pay the price. Let's it's up to us. How the oh,
1: then shall we live. Yeah, How then shall we
0: live? That's right.
1: Thanks very much, everybody. Tune into the next year when we do when we do our next show in January, and we'll have already started at that point the uh, the first show on yeah. uh, channel channel 1290 a.m.
0: Solutions News.
1: Solutions News.